This episode of Primitive Culture is brought to you by Audible.com, offering more than 180,000 titles for smartphone, tablet and desktop. To get a free audiobook of your choice and to help Trek FM at the same time, visit audibletrial.com slash trekfm. And also by Enterprise in Space, an international program of the non-profit National Space Society. Find out how you can help science and education and become a virtual crew member aboard the NSS Enterprise Orbiter by visiting enterpriseinspace.org. And if you want to join the conversation and share your thoughts on this episode, join the Babel Conference, our listeners group on Facebook. Just type B-A-B-E-L into the Facebook search field. We look forward to seeing you there. This is Tim Russ, Lieutenant Commander Tuvok on Star Trek Voyager, and you're listening to Trek FM. Open your mind to the past. Oh, this may mean something. I've been coerced into watching tonight's movie. You do have books in the 24th century. It's a primitive culture. I'm just trying to blend in. Some people think the future means the end of history. We haven't run out of history quite yet. Hello and welcome to Primitive Culture, a Trek FM podcast all about our history, our culture and how Star Trek relates to it. I'm Duncan Barrett and today I'm joined by a man who's written more episodes of Star Trek than anyone else in history. It's Brannon Braga. Hi Brannon, how are you? I'm great. Great to talk to you. It's good to talk to you as well. Um, there's so much that we could talk about in terms of your contribution to Star Trek, obviously the, the, the amount of Star Trek you've been involved in. I kind of wanted to zero in a little bit in this episode to talk about an intersection between your work on Star Trek and some of your other uh, passions and your other kind of creative projects. Um, and that's to talk a little bit about horror. And I know that horror is something that's very important to you and that in recent years, and even you know right now, kind of as we speak, is something that you've been working on quite a lot absolutely i understand you've just uh, finished directing your first uh, feature film and it's a it's a horror film is that right yeah it's called books of blood it's based on um uh clive barker's anthology series mm-hmm. of books it was published in the mid 80s um in england initially and i was always a huge fan of those books and um have had the, the great privilege of working directly with clive on creating a really cool anthological film. We're kind of, we're calling it kind of like the pulp fiction of horror. Three stories that kind of transect here. You know, it's, it's cool. Kind of like those, um, Black Mirror episodes. Have you seen those episodes of Black Mirror where they, they do a kind of anthology thing within the story, but they manage to make them all tie into one thing? Yeah. Kind of like, mm-hmm. that's a good analogy, except that this is more of a, a, a movie style but it, it was a ton of fun, and I, you know, it's, it's always been my dream to to direct a horror film. So this was uh, was a blast. You've done quite a lot of um, horror directing already, I guess, on Salem, the show that you were uh, executive producing and writing and um, and directing as well. Um, so I guess that must have been a good kind of training ground for for working on Books of Blood. Well, Salem, which I. Uh, created with Adam Simon, who has a very strong horror background and features mm-hmm. he himself directed. That was just a, a, an orgy of horror. I mean, it was if you, horror fans, horror show. Like it had so much great stuff in it and so many homages to different horror subgenres. Um, and 
I thought I got it all out of my system, but I apparently not. But that show, you know, if there are any horror fans out there right now, check out Salem if you haven't seen it already. It's three seasons. It's a complete story arc from beginning to end, and um, it's a lot of fun. Absolutely. I mean, I only had a chance to catch a few episodes and I have to say it's not, I mean, horror is not a genre that I'm hugely familiar with. I probably have a kind of average sort of layperson's uh, interest in the genre, if you know what I mean, but it's not something that I'm really passionate about. But I really enjoyed it. I enjoyed the episodes I watched. It is pretty full on. I mean, it strikes me kind of looking at that and then going back and looking at some of your Star Trek work, where obviously, you know, in many episodes, I think we could talk about where you've managed to bring horror elements in. Uh, But obviously, Star Trek, um, you know, even with the fact that now as it's come back with Discovery and Picard and so on it's kind of been pushing boundaries a little bit I don't think it's ever going to uh, push the kind of gore and, and horror and, and shock value in your face in the way that you have in Salem I mean in one episode you literally had um, a, a, a child who is as I understand it kind of the, the devil incarnated is, is having to transform into an adult and the adult kind of comes out from inside the child's body and rips its head off I mean you couldn't do this kind of thing on Star Trek I guess this is you know <laughs> this is pretty out there yeah that 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 was a, all done with practical effects my homage to the great transformation sequences from the 80s you know the howling and American werewolf in London and the thing you know, um, and I'm surprised we got away with it on cable TV. It was, it's pretty graphic. I mean, I'm yeah. like this would be rated R in a movie. Uh, TV is really the, the medium pushing boundaries right now. Um, but, uh, you know, I always had from an early age an interest in horror um, and an interest in science fiction. And only as... Uh, I got involved in Star Trek, you know, did I capitalize on the subgenre of sci-fi horror, which, you know, you can trace back to writers like H.P. Lovecraft uh, or H.G. Wells, who had horror, horror elements in his sci-fi tales. Um, and, you know, because Next Generation, which I started on, I just had to look at this an anthology show where you could kind of tell any kind of story. So I saw opportunities to tell the kinds of stories that I wanted to explore with those characters, um, which was great and great fun. And I thought really, you know, with the different, we had a really talented group of writers. Um, I'm not including myself in that. I was doing my best to keep up with people like Ron Moore and Michael Piller and Jerry Taylor. But, um, we all had our interests, you know, and the kinds of stories we like to tell. And so in the, the brilliance of Gene Roddenberry's concept was that you could do any, you could do anything. And I'm Seth MacFarlane and I are kind of continuing that tradition on the Orville where you, you don't know what you're going to get every week. It's a different kind of story. And in season three of Orville, which will be on Hulu at, at some date when this pandemic's over, uh, there's a great horror episode. Um, I think there's one in season one as well that I directed, actually, uh, that has a creepy clown in it. And the next in next generation, you know, it, it I, I think there was some good scary stuff in there. I don't know if it holds up, but it certainly was fun to do at the time. I would say absolutely it does. I mean, obviously you can't, as I say, you kind of you can't 
push things as much as you can with something like Salem or as much as you can with a horror movie. But some of those episodes, I mean, I was watching Schisms uh, last night. That episode never fails to set the hairs on my arms tingling. It's particularly that one scene, you know, that scene you wrote with the, uh, they're reconstructing this table in the holodeck and they're trying, and everyone's sort of trying to remember this thing that's, um, that they've experienced, but it's a kind of, I suppose, almost sort of repressed memory or a kind of, you know, forgotten memory. And there's something just really chilling about the way that that scene is constructed. And it's not, it's not like a horror movie. It's not like the kind of gore and in your face of it. I suppose that's the kind of, it's a sort of psychological horror. Um, But even within the framework of Next Gen, which, you know, can feel like quite a kind of safe, comfortable, cosy uh group of people a kind of environment you know it's sort of comfort tv for a lot of us i think and the orville i suppose kind of capitalizes on that that feeling and that kind of nostalgia for that comfort feeling uh and yet you can do something like that where suddenly it's like the temperature has dropped in the room you, you, you know you can have that kind of real um chilling psychological kind of uh shock value in a way yeah and, and schisms the the drag about that episode I felt was that when you finally see the aliens, they're just disappointing <laughs> to me. It's like it, they, the director, I can't remember who did it. It might've been Corey Allen or Cliff Bowl or one of our go-to directors did the best they could, but I, I didn't like the aliens, but certainly um, that set piece of uh, it's kind of Whitley Stryber type of alien abduction Thing that was still relatively new at the time was was chill. I, I'd use the word chilling, and particularly for this group of explorers who you're not used. To, you know, I think the closest to horror before then that I detected probably was um, when they first encountered the Borg. You really got a sense of scary stuff, but this was flat out, you know, psychological horror, and that's the horror I like the best. I would always prefer to a movie like uh, Halloween, 1978's Halloween, to 1980's Friday the 13th, because Halloween was psychological and Friday the 13th was gore. So I don't think the best horror is bloody at all. It's the kind of it's the creep factor more than the slasher. Uh, and I suppose you don't get that many, although you do get a slasher moment in um in phantasms i think it is where where data is kind of stalking troy and there's even a shot in there that you know it's almost like it's been taken out of psycho with data with this it's not a knife it's a kind of engineering tool that he's using as a knife and he's, he's stabbing her with it yeah no yeah that's definitely was was also pretty creepy um and uh that that got into kind of surrealism mm. and dream imagery which can be quite quite frightening as well um, it's another episode that I think really pushes that crew. I mean, if anything, you might say the Next Generation crew, they're a very kind of uh, super ego driven, sort of well-defined, well in control of themselves kind of group of people. Uh, and it's quite nice in a way to see these episodes sometimes that turn all of that on its head and kind of create sort of chaos, I suppose. And in that episode, it's very much the unconscious is the kind of return of the repressed. It's all this sort of weird stuff coming out uh and, and i think there are you know some some quite freaky you know freaky elements in there that are are quite effective you know within the the scope of um you know what's possible to put on tv especially what's possible possible to put on tv in the 90s and you know to get away with i'm kind of curious though were there ever things where you felt like it was a, a 
it, there was a limitation placed on sort of how far you could go or where you had to rewrite something because it was too uh, gruesome or too kind of heavy. You, you know, did you ever have to rein it in knowing that you were writing for Star Trek at the time? Not to my recollection. Um, we had a tremendous amount of creative freedom. I think as long as you were true to the characters and the ethos of Star Trek um, and that you weren't just doing gruesome or scary stuff just for the sake of doing it. I mean, there's a sort, there's an intricate story happening in phantasms where the surreal imagery actually all holds a clue to a, a mystery as to what's really happening. But I never, you know, I never really was reined in. I mean, I knew if they couldn't figure out how to do something that I was on the right track. Um, you know, how are we going to turn Troy into a cake? <laughs> if I could throw the production team into make them, you know, work harder to try to figure something out, I knew we were doing something new. Um, of course, that's the oldest magician's trick in the book, the, the, the fake table with her underneath. But um, no, I, I never felt um, in, in my 15 years on Star Trek, I don't think I ever was told to tone something down. Because, you know, it had, still had to be an episode of, of Star Trek. Like, it, and there's certainly, you're only going to get so bloody. You know, when Data attacks Troy, it's a, it's pretty tame. Term. I don't even know if you see any blood at all. Um, so there was just a certain way things were done that wasn't too graphic. And it's funny. You know, I think of another really blatant horror movie a creature feature of sorts was um episode called genesis i think it might have been season seven where the crew is de-evolving into various creatures which should not work it should not work but gates mcfadden did a great job directing it and um you know that's a creature feature man that's a haunted house creature feature and uh it has some scary you know barclay as the spider is this is kind of scary at, certainly at the time um, and it's, you know, it's always kind of has a science fictional element to it to give it a little whiff of believability in that case, a very, very faint whiff. Um, and I think that always kind of grounded the horror a little bit. You know, we weren't dealing with supernatural. We weren't dealing with psychopaths or some of the other traditional elements of horror. It always had a science fiction aspect to it. So again, it's science fiction horror, which is kind of its own thing. It's interesting. You, you pointed out it's basically a haunted house uh, story. And one of the things that makes that work is that you take Picard and Data away and then kind of bring them back. And the Enterprise, which is normally very brightly lit and kind of clean, has in their absence sort of, you know, the lights have gone off. It's kind of it, it has become this kind of spooky environment. There's almost a sense you kind of have to transform the environment of Star Trek in order to tell these stories to some extent you have to be able to make it dark and kind of grungy and dirty and you know in other episodes i don't know something like macrocosm you've got kind of goo oozing out of things you all this kind of clean uh sort of design utopianism in a sense that i guess you have in star trek has to be sort of stripped away and it has to get kind of dark and grungy and dirty or even in first contact you know you have to have the borg literally transforming the ship into this kind of house of horrors where the temperature's higher and it's all a bit sweaty and a bit kind of dark and disgusting somehow yeah well that's the idea i, I liked doing that 
changing the ship. I did that a lot on Voyager too. I think at one mm. point I even froze the ship under ice, like, and it would really yeah. piss off the production de- designers because, you know, once you freeze the bridge over, you've got to clean it up too. But it's fun to do that. It's fun to transform the ship um, into, you know, a, a, a creepy place. Does your experience now as a director, I mean, particularly in relation to horror, but I guess just generally as well, affect how you now go back and write these scenes? I mean, in a sense, if you're the writer sort of saying, right, I can write this, someone else's problem to work out how to realise it, that's one thing. But if you know you might be the one who ends up actually having to direct it, does it does that feed into it? Or does, does having the kind of director's mindset, does that come back in when you're writing? Or are those two very different sort of hats that you're wearing? I think it's the latter. Um, I've always written my scripts tend to be pretty specifically visual. I'm not calling shots out. Sometimes I am, but I think my I've always written um, from a very strong visual place, a directorial place, um, and whether I'm the one doing it or not, um, I don't worry when I'm writing how to do things. I want to make it the best story. And then when you're in pre-production on an episode, then you start thinking, okay, well, we can't do that. Like that's, so we need to figure something else out. But I don't like to rein myself in while I'm writing too much. Um, then you're, you're just, you know, handcuffing your imagination. And that's, that's the, that's the freedom time, you know, when you're thinking stuff up and you'd be surprised, you know, what these amazing artists and craftspeople can accomplish. They like to be challenged. Absolutely. Well, I mean, I think, you know, something like Genesis, it's, you're, you're right, it's an episode, the, the kind of concept behind it is slightly balmy uh, from a kind of sciencey point of view, I suppose, but it's very effective the way that it, it works. It's, you know, it's, and the makeup and all of that stuff is, is you know, Michael brilliant, Westmore, I'd say. Like, you know, Michael yeah. Westmore, like, going to town, like, he's going to make, He's going to turn Barclay into a spider. And it's a great makeup. It's a great makeup. And um, he, he loved it. You know, he, oh, he's, he, he gets more money for his budget that week. <laughs> yeah. He, and he's not, doing, he's not doing a little forehead thingy this week. You know, that was a real fun thing for him to do. And you've got also that kind of, I mean, it's a real sort of horror moment in a way when Barkley pops up because it's not just a lot of the, the crew, we sort of see them having been transformed in various ways. But Barkley gets the kind of, he literally sort of pops up from the floor, if you know what I mean. Picard is kind of walking towards the warp core, I think it is, isn't it? And he's sort of peering towards it and then he just pops up out of nowhere. And it's a kind of, you know, it's it's a sort of shock um what do you call it? You, you, you know, it's kind of a horror trope in a way that the sort of bang, the kind of loud noise, a jump, a jump scare. And, you know, it, it's it's kind of I used to think that those were cheap scares. But in fact, they're, they're hard to pull off. I guess a loud sound can make startle anybody. But you got to at, at their best. They're coupled with a disturbing image. And I think that was a really effective one. I'm not sure there were a whole lot of scary moments like that on next gen you know there was an episode I, that jerry taylor wrote called night terrors I, I was in the story break for that but she wrote it and that has to me the, the scariest next gen scene when the bodies come to life in the morgue 
that that to me was was super creepy. And then, you know, I I often I often see, I know this is going to sound strange. I see time travel stories as horror stories, in that they're all kind of about death. You know, if we if we were a species that lives for thousands of years or hundreds of years, time travel stories wouldn't be all that interesting to us. Um, it's because of the finite nature of our existence that it becomes the stories become interesting. Uh, and you know, you could look like you can look at a story like Remember Me, um, where the crew is vanishing, is kind of a, a, a terrifying story. It's a sort of psychological horror in a way, isn't it? Yeah. And, and I, as weird as this might sound, uh, there, you know, there was a time loop episode I did called Cause and Effect, which is kind of an existential horror story. Like it's, <laughs> you know, if, if you are old enough that you can go back and remember seeing it for the first time, it was very trippy. Like people were calling into TV stations, local stations saying there's something wrong with the broadcast. What more could you hope for? You know, it's like outer limits. Don't touch your TV set. We're <laughs> like that's that that's psychological horror, man. Like what the hell is happening? Well, it's almost like a kind of version of hell as well, isn't it? You know, dying over and over and over again. There is something in that. That's filled with horror, horror kind of things like hearing voices whispering and, um, you know, that Beverly hears and. A, a very eerie sense of deja vu and the knowledge that you're going to keep dying. It, I mean, that that's a horror story. It's a sci-fi horror story without question. And I guess in a way, a lot of what horror kind of draws from is to do with our preoccupation with mortality and death and decay. I mean, a lot of horror involves, you know, corpses one way or another. And we get that in Star Trek as well. I mean, even I was um, looking at Equinox recently, the, the way those aliens, they, they turn every, they, when they kill people, they sort of turn them into like old dead bodies as if they've sort of almost been exhumed or something. And you get that in Timescape as well. I mean, talking about time and horror, having that weird connection there's that horrific moment in Timescape where Picard goes to touch the fruit and his hand sort of ages, uh, you, you know, dramatically uh, in front of him. And it's incredibly painful. and He kind of screams as well. There is something about that kind of um, and obviously Star Trek's done lots of like premature aging kind of, you, you know, people aging very quickly kind of episodes. And obviously that does tap into this fear of, um, you know, our own mortality and our own sort of decay one way or another. You know, body horror is a subgenre of horror that has always interested me. And I, I think that that hand moment with the long fingernails and the, you know, we couldn't have, we didn't have CGI, so we really couldn't. I think today we probably would have shown it age. Um, but it's still pretty scary. Thanks to some cool makeup and Patrick's performance and body horror, you know, I think in Star Trek really culminates with the Borg, which is, the strong body horror aspect to them. Um, they assimilate you and they stick tubes in you and turn you into something else, sever limbs, poke your eyes out, um, and take away your, any trace of your individuality. Um, and I think that that's part of the reason, um, that the board on a conceptual level were popular. I, I think it's more than that. They were cybernetic, you know, so they're, they're cybernetic zombies, mm. you know, um, and I thought they got even more horrific when the Borg Queen was introduced, who's kind of this 
this vampiric character, this, um, you know, her introduction as a torso. I mean, that's a, that's that's a horror movie. It is. She's almost like a kind of decapitated. Uh, she, I mean, it's like part of a body. That's it. You, you know, even the way she's introduced, it's kind of not a full, not a complete body. So there's something very unsettling about that. It's like she crawled out of a coffin. Like yeah. She, the torso <laughs> emerges and, and the head. In fact, that image, what inspired that image for me was a movie called The Thing That Wouldn't Die, which was a 1950s <laughs> American film about a woman who is in a horrific, is decapitated in a car crash and a scientist who's able to keep her head alive in his lab. And she has a little skull cap on. She, and if you look at the image of, and that gave me really bad recurring nightmares as a child. And, um, if you look at the image from that movie, that's, you'll see the correlation with the introduction of the board queen as a disembodied head and torso. Um, so that's right out of a horror movie. And I mean, first contact is essentially a horror movie, I would say. I mean, you've got the great, all the kind of horror tropes are in there. You've got, I mean, when you were saying about those kind of jump scares, you've got one of those actually in sick bay, the great shot where uh, Dr. Crusher is sort of backing, walking backwards towards the door. And then suddenly these Borgs start kind of, trying to smash the door down behind her and she jumps you've got that amazing uh the woman who dies in the jeffrey's tube uh where she, she goes up looking for her, her, her friend or whatever and you just see her face kind of screaming as the as, as the board come and get her i mean it, i think it's it's very effective you know obviously it's a film that is beloved on many levels but it works very well as a horror movie i'm kind of curious at what point when you were sort of pitching that idea, you know, to Rick Berman or to, the, the, you know, Paramount, whoever it was, did you realise from the very beginning that you were essentially making a Star Trek horror movie uh, when you were coming up with this idea? Or is that something that sort of fed into it gradually as you sort of looked to, well, what can the Borg bring to this? Well, I don't know that we ever thought we were making a horror movie. Um, we knew we were making uh, a movie that was really about the birth of the birth of Star Trek and that we knew that we wanted to make the board more intense for the big screen, that we could bring a greater level of intensity. Um, we could redesign them and make them cooler. Uh, I, there's no question that once they, the board start assimilating the enterprise, you're in a haunted house. And we were quite aware that, we want that's the, the feeling we wanted to create. Um, and there's this one of my favorite moments um, in the movie is when Data's feeling anxiety and is able to turn off his chip, <laughs> you know, his emotion chip. And Picard says, "I I envy you." Sometimes, you know, that's a great moment, but it also um, creates anxiety in the audience. If Data's nervous, that, then you you better be worried. It's really bad, yeah. Uh, but uh, I don't think we set out to make a horror movie per se, but there are horror, definitely horror elements in it, and Jonathan Frakes approached a lot of the shots that way. Um, he did Borg POVs, which is kind of a horror thing, the stalker. Um, we shot sequence. We wanted to up the scare quotient. Um, when the first, When we previewed the first cut, we realized... We needed some more Borgification type stuff. So there's a montage in there of Borg with lasers in the darkness and people 
without limbs being fortified. It's kind of, and that was something, a sequence we shot, um, wrote and shot after the movie was cut together to kind of show the horrors a little bit more. And we hired actors with no arms and we hired an actor with a glass eye that we could put a board eye into. And um, there's some real body horror in that, in, in, in those shots. And the film even opens. I mean, the very first shot, well, the very first shot of the film, you, you have this kind of, you know, the, the uh, sort of zooming out from Picard and so on. But then you have this scene that I found. I mean, I remember seeing it in cinema and being scared by it. But, you, you know, this kind of dream within a dream, this nightmare within a nightmare, which I think is another element of horror that is uh, is genuinely very scary. This idea that you might not know whether something is real or not. So you have you know picard seemingly waking up from his nightmare and then going to wash his face and this and again the kind of body horror thing this thing erupting from his face and then suddenly waking up a second time and you're like oh that was you know that was the nightmare and it's a trick i noticed you use again in enterprise with topol in the uh, impulse the kind of zombie vulcan episode at the end there's a scene where it seems like it's all okay and then in fact um it turns out she's having a nightmare you know and, and, and it all goes awful and, th- and then she wakes up for real recycling my old ideas that are already recycled <laughs> from other people. Another thing we that was was good about the first contact movie was we you know we could do a Borg app- appendage erupting from Picard's skin. Uh, that's just just not something we could afford to do on the TV show. And you know that ILM could do for us really well. You know, so and and it you know, certainly at the time felt more violent and graphic than we might have wanted to do on a TV show, you know. Um, and in fact, I remember uh, the film, I have a poster right here, I want to see what, what it was rated. I think it was PG-13. Um, pretty sure the movie got a PG-13, and, the re- and it was interesting to me to see what the... MPAA, the ratings board here in America, what got you a, a rating like that? And I remember initially we got an, I think initially we got an R rating. Um, and it was, we were like, what? This, we can't release an R rated Star Trek movie. And it was, it was a moment when data breaks a Borg's neck. I've always thought that's quite dark for Star Trek at <laughs> the moment. Apparently, that gets you an R rating mm-hmm. um, for certain things that are at the time in the nineties, mid nineties, like the, the, the F word, any kind of nudity, you know, automatic nowadays, not so much, but, um, and the breaking of, of a neck, which was like, huh. And I think what we did, we recut it to be a little briefer and less graphic. Um, data breaking the neck of, of a, someone is not something that you would see every day. So the movie had just a higher level of intensity than an average episode, I think. And in, sometimes intensity is what horror is all about. It is definitely, I think. And I mean, you know, and the movie manages to hold together. I always think it's very impressive. These two storylines, these kind of parallel storylines, one which is so intense uh, and so dark and kind of gruesome. And then, one which is much more comedic and lighter and gentler and so on. And somehow it, it, it doesn't feel jarring, you know, that you can have these two stories running along in parallel. I always think it's quite impressive how seamlessly that uh, those 
two elements of the film kind of blend together. Well, there are three stories, really. You're forgetting the Data Borg Queen story. Of course, yeah. Yeah, that's true. But I mean, I, I suppose I, I think of that as at least within the 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 realm of the kind of gruesome do you know what i mean it's it's it, you got the stuff on the ship and the stuff on the ground but you're right there's three plots going on i suppose yeah there's picard and lily and the crew there's data and the queen and then there's the mm-hmm. story on the surface and um the data one is the closest thing we have to kind of a seduction mm-hmm. uh, um a very twisted one and that it was there's a psychosexual component to the queen that was you know would have probably been a little too racy for for the television show at the time mm-hmm. um where we push some boundaries um you know she gives him she there's some sexual imagery there um she gives him a blowjob basically <laughs> that's what you were going to say right say it but uh <laughs> but that's the joke isn't it yeah yeah and and I think it's interesting. I mean, sexuality is obviously a quite a core component of horror as a genre. I mean, there's a reason a lot of horror films focus on groups of teenagers who are kind of becoming sort of sexual beings to some extent. There's a kind of link there between death and violence and kind of and sex, basically, that I suppose it is, is runs throughout so much of horror. And in a way, it makes sense that when Star Trek goes horror in first contact you know that the borg the more horrific they get suddenly you get this queen who is this very disconcerting strange mixture of being quite horrific and also very seductive at the same time and she and it is a sexy performance as much as she's quite sort of repulsive but sexy at the same time if you know what i mean alice krieger uh who she's what i called uh, creepy sexy sexy creepy take your pick and you know, I had really loved her in the movie Ghost Story from mm-hmm. the, I think 1980. She was very much creepy sexy in that movie, and I think I was the one who suggested her to uh, for the role. There were other actresses considered, but I'm like, you're not going to find anybody who can pull off what she'll be able to pull off in this role. And, um, and yeah, I mean... I, I called her vampiric. You know, there's there's a there's a seduction going on, and um, yeah, it's interesting. One of the other things that I think works very well in the movie is that in order to kind of play up this kind of haunted house thing, you have Lily in the role of the kind of. Uh, you know, I was going to say like the scream queen. She, she's the one. She screams a lot in the film, and she, you know, and she's a tough character. She's not a wimp, but at the same time, understandably, she's been transported into this horrific uh, environment, which is frankly terrifying. Uh, and so you get a lot of, you know, as well as you, you say, you, you know, those kind of POV shots of the the Borg kind of stalking people, but you also get in at least one of those a, a great shot of, of Lily kind of screaming in the face of a Borg. Uh, so you've kind of got that element. And it sort of struck me looking back at some of these other uh, Star Trek episodes that you've written that kind of draw on horror. You often do have someone who kind of falls into the role, the sort of screen queen role, whether it's, you know, Troy being stalked or uh, even in Phantasms, you've got this date. The solution is data has to scream at these creatures in order to kind of get rid of them. And in Genesis, weirdly you've got picard in that role because he he is regressing in this way that he becomes quite timid and scared and he still has to act anyway but he becomes the sort of 
the sort of weak hero if you know what i mean which i suppose on, on some level is kind of a horror trope that you, you know someone who finds the inner strength but physically they're quite weak they're they're not necessarily they're, they're, they're overpowered physically if you know what i mean but they're kind of um and they're terrified but they're going to get on with it anyway yeah for sure i mean the the in the case of lily she was our pov character for for everything in the movie really and was an absolutely essential character to understanding um she was a surrogate for the audience you know it's, there was a reason that movie really appealed to a, a an audience that went beyond star trek which is always your goal you know and um but for, as far as the horror goes, yeah, it was fun to, you know, what would a, a person like you or me think about <laughs> these crazy creatures running around? Because I guess horror movies, they do put ordinary people in a really awful situation like that. They're not typically focused on kind of uh, sort of naturally heroic types, whereas Star Trek, most of the, the characters in Star Trek, we sort of see as quite heroic, as kind of better than us, if you know what I mean. Whereas... I suppose a typical horror movie, it does, you know, it is like a group of teenagers. It is like a group of ordinary people. Um, I'm kind of curious whether that affects. I noticed, say, in, uh, you know, in Schisms and Frame of Mind, you've got two episodes that do quite, in some ways, quite similar things to Riker, you know, really push that character. Are there some characters sort of within Star Trek that you feel lend themselves to the kind of to being victimized by horror if you know what i mean in those episodes is there a link between the character and the story that you can kind of craft for them well in the case of Riker, yes you know i don't think frame of mind which is a psychological horror story or without for sure um i don't think it would have worked as well with picard uh i don't think i think there's something about Riker that you feel like he's a, just a little more relatable, a little more like a person from today. And, you know, Picard is just so, you know, look what it took to break down Picard. It took a two part episode where he's being tortured the entire time. Like you don't break Picard, <laughs> you know, <laughs> that, that quick. But there's a, there was always a little bit of a unexplored aspect to Riker and a vulnerability I detected in Riker and, and certainly I felt the actor could, and I just felt like Frakes was a really good actor who deserved a little more to do. And uh, so, yes, I felt picked Riker for a reason for both of those episodes. And frame of mind is definitely an episode that gives him a lot to do. I mean, I'd say that is a, sort of going to be anyone's sort of top five Riker episodes because he, he, it's brilliantly, it is psychologically scary. He also gives a brilliant performance as, you know, not just Riker, but Riker acting in the play, Riker acting in the play in a nightmare where it's not really the play. Do you know what I mean? Like he has quite, you've given him quite a lot of layers and levels to, to play within that one story. Yeah. Oh, oh, for sure. And he was great. And, um, and the director, Jim, Jim Conway, did a great job with it. And, uh, yeah, it was really fun. It was fun to watch Frakes really sink his teeth into all that. And uh, though I would argue uh, Second Chances was a good Riker episode where you got two Rikers for the price of mm -hmm. one. That's true. Yeah, another good one. Definitely, definitely. Um, and a different kind of, I mean, not psychological horror, but a kind of, a, a, you know, a horrific situation for any of us to find ourselves in anyway. Equal twin, or maybe yeah. equal twin type of thing. 
I guess so. I guess so. I mean, I'm interested. Sometimes some of these, obviously, there is a a link between you. You can kind of, you know, being out in space would be kind of scary. We do, there is a kind of link between horror and sci-fi. You know, there are films like Alien. There are films like Event Horizon, even that really kind of make that link. Um, but I'd say some of these stories within Star Trek they draw even from other. Uh, areas that that than that kind of obvious connection if you know what i mean one of the things that struck me is a couple of episodes that you worked on that kind of pull on this idea of pedophobia i guess or like really freaky freaky scary children basically and i noticed that um i read an interview that you'd given i can't remember what the, the website was but about your sort of favorite scary movies and one of them was a film about uh i think it was an adaptation of the turn of the screw about these kind of creepy uh creepy children and i'm kind of curious you know in imaginary friend for example and then again in voyager with um cold uh what's it called cold fire i was gonna say cold fury that's that's mixing two episodes together with the episode cold fire in voyager you've got this idea again of the kind of creepy little girl uh which i guess you, you know again sort of ties a little bit into the exorcist and to in salem having the devil as this this young boy and so on but what is it do you think that is so that that makes these the, these children who aren't children so sort of unsettling and um you, you know how how did you how did you find kind of porting that into star trek did you find that was an easy match well the movie you're referencing is uh, called the innocence um mm-hmm. uh, deborah carr and directed by jack clayton in one of my favorite movies of all time and it is based on turn of the screw by henry james um and about a woman who thinks that these two children that she's over uh, uh, she's a nanny watching these two kids who may or may not be possessed by um two dead extremely perverted evil caretakers that used to live there and it's she's either these kids are either truly possessed or deborah carr a sexually repressed kind of spinster is losing her mind and I think that movie, more than anything, inspired in me the kind of story where someone's losing their grip on reality. And that's a frame of mind episode. Right. Yeah. That's an interesting point that those two things are bundled together in that story. Yeah, it's but, uh, you know, creepy kids is a grand tradition. Um, mm-hmm. I hesitate to use imaginary friend as, as anything uh, successful. Uh, I don't really like that episode. It was the first rewrite I ever did, no, the first one I did, I did with Ron Moore, uh, Reunion. It was my second rewrite, and I never really liked that story. Um, I did my best with it, but it just, I wished it turned out better. Um, because having a creepy imaginary friend, um, is not a bad idea. And the girl is quite, like, I find her quite freaky. I think the actress does quite a good job of being, of that sort of cold, slightly psychopathic, um, uh, you know, it's not about. I mean, you sort of might worry about with child performers getting them to to get what you what you need. But I feel like she does a pretty decent job of that. Yeah, and I, I mean, I don't think I, I, I don't think I populated Star Trek with a lot of creepy kids. Certainly, I can't remember. I'm so embarrassed to say I barely remember Cold Fire. I well, Cold Fire. I'll refresh your memory then, because I, I had to go back and watch it this week. I hadn't seen it for a while, but it's the episode where they find the the second caretaker. So it's and one of the things that 
I thought was interesting about it is so it's an episode that's been anticipated ever since the pilot in that there's been this you know they know there's this female caretaker and at some point we're going to find her and maybe she'll send us home or whatever and I was just kind of curious because it seems like a very out of left field decision to turn that into an episode with all these kind of horror trappings because obviously the pilot caretaker didn't really have any of that I wouldn't I mean it had like some experiments and so on but the caretaker seemed like this kind of benign godlike figure that you kind of get in Star Trek from time to time whereas when you get to cold fire you've got the the female caretaker we find out is called Suspiria so she's named after a horror film you've got Kess doing all this uh, telekinetic stuff where she burns Tuvok's face and then there's a kind of carry moment where she's sort of surrounded by flames I mean I think there's a it feels to me anyway like there's a kind of carry storyline for Kess going on there with her telekinesis and then you've got the female caretaker when she appears she appears as this like little girl in a pink dress um but with a older woman's voice and I was just kind of curious at what point maybe you won't remember if, you, if your memory of it is hazy but at what point and who was it who said I know what we're going to do for this story that's been anticipated for a year and a half we're going to go uh, horror with it because that's what it feels like it feels like someone's decided okay we're going to do this episode we've been waiting for but we're not going to do it the way anyone's expecting we're going to do something quite different with it well what's nutty is I wrote the episode and uh, it was season 2 episode 10 and um, what you're describing sounds cool <laughs> this is one of the rare cases where I really have a vague recollection um, of Oh yeah, Gary Graham was in it. He plays the accompan uh, the Acumpa guy who wants Kess to stay with them. But one of the things that's quite striking about it is that it doesn't. It's like one of those episodes. It starts off quite sort of sci-fi, and then it kind of goes in a different direction, like about halfway through. Uh, but it sort of struck me, even the decision to call the character Suspiria, it all seems quite innocent up until that point. They're like, oh yeah, you'll have to meet our caretaker Suspiria. And as the viewer, you're sort of thinking, oh, okay, <laughs> you know, where's this going to go? This, you know, suddenly it sounds like we're heading somewhere sinister, you know. God, this is terrible. I wonder if I have Alzheimer's disease. <laughs> well, you have written, haven't you written, I think, how many episodes of Star Trek have you written, Brannon? It's like a hundred and something, isn't it? I mean, it's a good excuse. <laughs> Credited on a hundred plus, and then yeah. I'm sure I did another fifty to a hundred rewrites. I, I would actually have to count it up. Uh, but yeah. Suspiria is no doubt. I named her that after the Dario Argento picture, and um, yeah, there was definitely, as I recall, I wanted to do kind of a carry thing with Kess, um, but I. I would have to watch the, the episode again um, because I just don't remember it quite enough. I don't remember the caretaker aspect of it. So, But there's no question that um, I was doing something with horror there. <laughs> well let me let me ask you about another voyager episode and, and see if it's uh, it comes more comes to mind. Um, the Vidians, we were talking about body horror. And obviously with the Delta Quadrant, you've got this opportunity to invent new villains. And it seems to me like the Vidians are basically the body horror villain for Star Trek. And you got to do Phage, which was the episode that introduced them um, and kind of established that. That must have been quite a, uh, a, an interesting one in a way to, to, you know, every time you get a chance to bring in a new villain that you presumably hope at least is going to be a recurring one and to focus in this case on that quite specific thing that is so repulsive and revolting and horrifying. Well, yeah, I mean, 
apps 100% of the DNs were a horror show. Um, you know, early in Voyager, we a show that was going was promising um, that a ship was being catapulted to a, an unexplored region of space, which technically was every week on Next Gen. But that aside, um, I felt that there was a promise to the audience that there was a, you know, a bit of an X-Files to this Star Trek incarnation, that it should be extra scary out there at times. So the Vidians were an attempt early on, I believe it was early in season one, that episode, with these frightening-looking creatures who steal Neelix's lungs, which is pretty awful, um, but with this tragic backstory of a species who has been living with, you know, a plague or pandemic that never went away. And what would happen to their society if this flesh-eating plague just decimate they you know it, it's a to me was an interesting concept and uh but stealing body parts from other species is pretty much as horror as you can get um and i was really happy with the way they looked and i was really happy with the way they would come back a couple more times in the series well there's at the episode i don't think it was one of yours but i'm you might remember it the episode faces where balana is is divided into the human and Klingon by the Vidians has what I would say is probably the most terrific moment in probably the whole of Star Trek where you've got the the Vidian uh, scientist who takes the face of one of the Voyager crewmen and puts it you know surgically grafts it onto his own face and and suddenly sort of reveals himself with this with this new face proudly uh uh, that that's a moment that I sort of still find almost surprising that you could get away with <laughs> in Star Trek in the nineties because it's so uh, it's such I mean it's such a horrific idea but it's also just a, a sort of visually very shocking uh, you know bit of makeup and kind of um, effect really yeah that was a great makeup job and you know there was an episode I did called Deadlock mm-hmm. where the you know the Vidians show up at the worst possible moment toward the end of the episode. And what you know, you invented a, a good species when just the mention of their name evokes a certain feeling of tension and dread. Um, and so that, that definitely was a successful alien. Probably should have seen a little more of them, but, um, yeah, you're making me feel like everything I contributed was was had some. <laughs> yeah. I think there are other. I mean, there are other takes. Most people, in my experience, when your name comes up, it's the more kind of the sort of high concept or the sort of slightly um, slightly out there kind of concepts in a way. But I mean, it just struck me when I was looking through your, you know, kind of. Uh, episography on uh, on Memory Alpha. I, I was like, wow, yeah, there are quite a lot. You, you know, because I knew that you were doing this Books of Blood. I knew that you'd been working on Salem and so on. And I thought, oh, yeah, there are more, more of these are kind of horror inflected episodes than I'd sort of realised. Which is why I was sort of wondering, you know, was was that an agenda or was it just is it just that uh, that's kind of how it fell out? Did did you sort of feel right? I'm gonna, you know, sneak as much horror into Star Trek as I can. Well, horror inflected is a great phrase and it's an accurate one in that. Sometimes these stories weren't out and out 
horror. But as you said earlier, space can be a, a, a scary place at times and um, a, a mysterious and sometimes terrifying place filled with unknowns. And uh, I just think horror, I like the phrase horror inflected because it just, it, it implies a sensibility. Mm-hmm. And sometimes if, I guess in my case, horror is just part of my creative sensibility, a creative DNA. It's probably going to manifest in some way in everything I do, um, which is fine. Well, I noticed actually in two of the next gen episodes that we've mentioned, Frame of Mind and Phantasms, you have versions of the same kind of conversation, first of all with Riker and then again with Data, basically saying, I, I'm being plagued by this nightmare imagery, which I think is the phrase, disturbing images, I wrote it down, you call it disturbing images in Frame of Mind and nightmare imagery in Phantasms, which very much could be a description of what horror is sort of as a genre. And in both those episodes, you've got Troy basically saying to them, don't be afraid of that. Uh, explore that. Don't don't suppress that. Do you know what I mean? Kind of making a, a quite a strong statement in a way, saying this is part of what it means to be human. This is part of us. Uh, we shouldn't shy away from those things. Yeah, it's a, I believe a Jungian Carl Jung phrase: uh, owning your sh- owning your shadow. Yeah, I gave a little speech to Troy about that. And you've got Jung in frame of mind, Troy quoting Jung. And then in Phantasms, of course, you've got Freud himself uh, turning up. Although Troy seems a bit more down on Freud in the episode. She, she says to Data, you know, come back to me. Don't don't go and see Sigmund. You know, you can't, can't always trust what Freud's going to tell you. But it, I suppose it's kind of interesting, this idea that these characters might have these kind of this sort of bubbling unconscious underneath these quite composed exteriors uh you, you know that the unconscious can still be quite dark and gritty and and scary effectively even when your sort of conscious life and conscious self is so composed and so sort of um perfect yeah that's by the way well said and i think that is why some of these episodes are remembered is because in the context of next generation when stuff like this when scary stuff like this psychologically scary stuff like this happened it was unusual and kind of stood out more and as long as it was believable um that it might happen to these people it it, it was very effective it was more effective with these characters than on an ordinary a tv show set in present day now, I'm kind of curious, I don't know how much you've seen of Discovery or the Picard series, but I mean, both of those in various ways have, I think, pushed slightly at what Star Trek can get away with in terms of kind of the age ratings and so on. I mean, both of them, we've had quite a lot of swearing. Both of them have had beheading scenes, which I don't think we've ever had in Star Trek before. Um, I don't think they've e- either of them have gone full on horror, though there was a Discovery episode that went pretty kind of Game of Thrones with the Klingons. But I'm sort of curious, do you think... I mean, is there a limit to how far Star Trek should go in these directions? Can you, you know, do you think Star Trek could go kind of to the depths that you go to in Salem of, you know, this sort of hellish nightmare uh, kind of world? Or, or do you think Star Trek needs to always pull back a little bit, needs to always slightly have the, the brakes on that? I think that, you know, I don't know, it has to have some kind of psychological value. I don't think swearing for swearing's sake or just showing violence. Um, and I haven't seen these episodes that you're describing, but 
I never, I was always very circumspect about the idea of swearing on Star Trek. Uh, I'm not sure what it adds. But you had data saying shit. Yeah. <laughs> that must have, that was the start of the slope, I think. But, that was, but there was a good reason for it, and it was funny, I guess. Well, he had an emotion chip, and he was scared. Yeah. And, um, and that was, by the way, a huge deal. Because <laughs> it, it was the first... Uh, there may have been one in one of the original series movies. I think there's a shit in there somewhere. But having Data say it was, you know, mm. the whole point of it. Um, I've never made a conscious attempt to, to depict graphic violence on Star Trek, um, nor on the Orville. Um, in Salem, yes. But I, I don't know. It's just not part of what it is to me. Um, I suppose if, if they're beheading people, there must be a reason for it. But, um, to me, it's, it's not a place I would necessarily go. Um, I, then again, I think I'm going to contradict myself completely and utterly, uh, on, on enterprise, there was some pretty gruesome stuff. We did push some boundaries, um, with bodies hanging on meat hooks, I think in, an early episode, and um, certainly um, the episode Impulse, which is the Vulcan zombie episode, has some pretty cool stuff in it. So I guess uh, um, I guess I stand corrected. I think I don't know. I don't know what the, how far you put. I guess you can push Star Trek really far now. I guess that's what I'm saying is you can that they certainly can push it for further than you used to be able to if they want to if you know what I mean and sometimes it feels like they're trying to prove that a little bit and say look well that's what I object to is the arbitrary nature of I mean to, to me at the end of the day and this is just me this is nobody else I ever worked with this is not the people doing Star Trek now it's just my opinion is that it is still a show a family show and all you have to do is go to a Star Trek convention, um, if there are any more, ever, uh, with this pandemic stuff going on. But all you have to do is go to one of those things and see the families there. You know, this is people pass Star Trek on to their children. People with their children. It's a generational thing. And I would, I, I personally would only go so far. This is just me. Before, you know, I, I, I don't think I would want to do Star Trek that couldn't be watched by children because it's too violent or has the F word in it. Mm. Like, I don't think that's right. But that's just me. Well, that's an interesting point and kind of brings me on to um, one last question I was going to ask you. I mean, obviously, uh, we saw with Discovery, I'm sure, you know, Joe Minoski came back and wrote, I would say, for my money, the best episode that that show has has produced so far um really fantastic episode i know terry metallis is someone who you've worked with in the past who's now taking over as the showrunner of picard i mean if you got the phone call saying brandon we want you to come back and work on that show this show is that something you would be keen to do or do you sort of feel you're done with star trek now and you you know prefer to focus on other things is, is that a universe that you would still enjoy playing in i guess well before the orville i never thought i would be doing this kind of storytelling. But the Oracle more in the tradition of 90s Star Trek. It's standalone yeah. allegorical science fiction tales. And I 
boy, did I miss that kind of storytelling. I'm so, I, I love it so much. I missed being on a starship. The ship of the imagination in Cosmos is great, but doesn't count in the same way. And I really love being back in that kind of universe. And, you know, I'll, I'll Star Trek, yeah, I mean, I would certainly consider going back to Star Trek. It, you know, the, depend on the show and circumstances, but, um, you know, in some, in some ways I'm still doing it. Um, it's just with a different crew in a different science fictional universe. And obviously the Orville has found a real audience, I think. among. I mean, I don't want to draw the distinction too heavily because, you know, I enjoy all of them, if you know what I mean. But I know there are some people who are very sort of anti-discovery who are have, have kind of migrated to the Orville almost and that do you know what I mean it feels like can be quite divisive I don't think it necessarily needs to be uh and you know Star Trek has different shows that cater to different audiences and different tastes and always has done I don't think there's any reason anyone should be um disparaging of uh discovery or Orville they're their own things and there's room for both you know, you may prefer serialized storytelling to, or you may prefer the kind of storytelling Orville does. Certainly in modern television, the two are not enemies. And I think, uh, there's, you know, I, I think the biggest distinction may be the ethos of the show in that Orville is very optimistic and he, you know, deeply humanistic and uh, and shows more more of a kind of a uplifting future um and in a time where most television's pretty pretty grim and even discovery which is a beautifully produced show is is a little darker than we might be used to you know both in tone and literally um and uh i think some people I think Star Trek endures and we're still talking about it today because, because of what Gene created, which was a future we want to be in. No matter how dark or horrific the episode, at the end of the day, it's still a place we would love to be and love to be included. And, um, to me, that's one of the most important things. And even the scariest episodes that I worked on, have a happy ending for the most part <laughs> you know they get out of it yeah and i guess that's i mean part of the kind of horror story i suppose is is about survival isn't it i mean it, it, there are all these awful things that happen to people but you don't generally get a horror film where no one survives to the end you know the character that you're following is the one who makes it through against the odds so there is sort of hope at the end on one level i mean there, there may be the hand creeping up out of the, the grave in the final shot or whatever but there there is a kind of a happy ending or a hopeful ending or an escape i suppose and that's part of the catharsis of it definitely not always but um, you know, it's, you do typically want some kind of relief, you know, at the end. You want the monster to be, you know, blown up or, or destroyed or, or whatever, ultimately, don't you? That's the kind of... Yeah, for now, anyway. Yeah, <laughs> until the sequel. 
Well, Brannon, it's been an absolute pleasure talking to you and uh, going over some of these darker entries in your, uh, you know, Star Trek filmography, even as even some of the obscure ones that, you know, maybe. Um, so obscure, I've thought about I for a good few years. <laughs> <laughs> I know, I know. Um, if any of our listeners want to uh, try and continue the conversation online, um, where's the best place for them to find you? They can find you on Twitter. Is that right? Um, and I think. For me, probably uh, Instagram or uh, Twitter or Facebook. I'm on all the. I'm on all three. You know, I certainly um, probably the best place to have a written conversation uh, would be Facebook. I would think people can find me, and uh, you know, I always love hearing from Star Trek fans, and I'm really bummed that. Uh, the Comic Con in or the the convention in Vegas in August uh, mm. got, got canceled because I really love getting out there and talking to the fans you know once every year or two it's, it's you know it's a we all share this history together this shared history it's fictional but we share it nonetheless and um, it's nice to touch base with with one's fellow Star Trek people because at the end of the day i'm a fan too it's uh we're still waiting to find out whether the uk convention is kind of going to go go the same way it's sort of uh it's hard to know really but i mean it will all be temporary you know next year if it's not this year it'll be next year you know we'll get through it and in the meantime when um when are we going to be able to see books of blood and where do we uh look to find that so books of blood the will um be on hulu or whatever hulu is in the uk um, you have Hulu? I don't know. Um, I I don't personally. I don't, I don't think we do. I'm not sure. I, I may be wrong. But I mean, uh, some of these things, there are ways of accessing them. But often, I think a lot of these shows, they end up on Amazon or on Netflix or whatever over here. Yeah, I don't. In America, it, it comes out in October. Uh, sometime in October. Good time for horror. Yes. And um, or what they're calling Huluween. But um, I don't know about the UK. I actually don't. And I, I, I really hope that it's going to air there because, you know, Clive Barker, is, that's where he, he's from, the UK. And I would hope that they're going to that it's going to show there in some way. Absolutely. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, Clive Barker, I guess, best known for Hellraiser, Candyman. That was one of his as well, I think, wasn't he? But but yeah, British, as you say. Uh, well, we will I, I will investigate and I'll certainly uh, manage to track it down one way or another. Thank you so much for joining me. Hey, this is a great conversation, Duncan. Thank you so much. Well, it was fun talking to Brannon Braga about some of Trek's most horrific episodes this week, but that's not the only thing we've been doing on Trek FM, so here's a listen at what else you might have missed out on on the network. Previously on Trek.FM, The Line, a Star Trek Picard podcast. Like you're saying about JL, I remember at the time reading this, Rafi calling him JL, and I remember that feeling weird to me. Like you, the first time it was in the comic, and then I was like, JL, that's kind of casual, but like you said, she kind of talks to that. And but now rereading it, when I got to that, it just makes so much sense because I'm used to it now. It just seems so natural, but at the time it felt a little odd. Earl Grey. This is that McCoy is still alive, mm-hmm. and he goes and picks up McCoy 
and Scotty and McCoy have adventures throughout the galaxy in their own run. No, then they go and find the Nexus and get and get <laughs> Kirk back, and it's the three of them that go. Uh, and they go to Romulus, of course, as well to help out Spock with the reunification. Yeah. And then they go to the Genesis planet because obviously there's remnants of it after it blew up and they find some Spock DNA and they use some Borg maturation chamber to make themselves a mini Spock. But it goes wrong, so Spock is only like six inches tall. (laughs) Pocket Spock. And... And McCoy can put him in his pocket all the time. I'd like a base. We'll call him. He's got a a wee kind of lapel pocket. Yeah, I like this. A breast pocket. We'll call him Spocket. Spocket. Spocket (laughs) in McCoy's pocket. Uh, I like that. Okay. Primitive culture. A look at history and culture through Star Trek. That whole title sort of feels like the the beginnings of what. Roddenberry would do with with Q, and having all those play on Q basically, yeah. which I think I think had exactly. you had Mud come back, you know, more. It's almost a shame that Discovery hasn't picked up that, and and when they had Harry Muddy, yeah, <laughs> exactly. They should have done that. They resisted the temptation for the cheap. I mean, that is as I say, there is always a temptation with these things to go for the cheap pun. Uh, yeah. Sometimes it's the right decision to, to resist. I don't know. Um, I think a cheap point is the right call every time, Duncan, to be honest. The ready room. What does it mean to be artificial? And when you cross that barrier from being biological mm-hmm. to being artificial, but your your memories have been transferred, how much of who you are is the memory that you acquire over the course of your life and how much of it is the biological system of your body and that's what else is happening on trek.fm check out all these shows and join the conversation about your favorite corner of the star trek universe and beyond you'll find us wherever you get your podcasts if you're an apple user be sure to hit the subscribe button in Apple Podcasts on iPhone, iPad or Apple TV or the desktop iTunes app to get the latest episodes as soon as they're published. And please leave us a star rating and a written review. If you're not an Apple user, we've got you covered as well. You can find our shows on Google Play Music, Stitcher, TuneIn, Spreaker, SoundCloud, Windows Phone, in most third-party apps, and you can stream and download the MP3 file from our website or grab the RSS link. We'd love to hear your thoughts on today's show, and there are many ways for you to do that. The best place to join in the larger conversation is the Babel Conference, our listeners' group on Facebook. Just type Babel, B-A-B-E-L, into the search field on Facebook, and it should come right up. If you'd like to send us an email, you can use the form on our website at trek.fm contact. Choose to send to a show and select Primitive Culture, and that will come right to us. You can also find the network on Twitter at TrekFM and on Facebook at facebook.com slash TrekFM. If you'd like to help us keep all our shows coming to you each week, you can become a patron of the network on Patreon. Visit patreon.com slash TrekFM, that's p-a-t-r-e-o-n dot com slash TrekFM to get all the details. Perks include early access to episodes, exclusive content, producer credits and more, available through our special patrons website, PatronZone. It requires a great deal of money to produce, host and distribute these shows each month. So we really appreciate any support you can give us and we hope you'll join the team. 
Again, you can find all our details at patreon.com slash trekfm. We'd like to take a moment now to thank our associate producers on Primitive Culture, Amy Nelson, Clara Cook and Tony Black. Amy is a presenter of many other shows on the network and you can find her on Twitter at at Miss Amy Nelson. Clara and Tony were two of the former co-hosts of this show and they'll be popping back from time to time. You can find Clara on Twitter at at Clara Jean MC and Tony at at AJ Black Writer. You're blended already.